Amen. Well done, church. It is good to be with you. Uh, if I knew that you were going to have a choir this morning, I would have put on a coat and tie. <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, I'm used to preaching to the size that was in the choir today as I work with struggling churches all across South Carolina that really are looking for a hopeful future. And so it is humbling to be before you and uh, to see God at work in your midst after all these years. God has been so faithful, and elders, you have led well through the years, and I give you thanks. And I give thanks to the Lord for what he is doing at Christ Fellowship Cherrydale, and look forward to what he will do in the days ahead. Now, if you're new to Christ, Christ Fellowship Cherrydale, uh, we're in the middle of a series. So if you walked in today expecting a Thanksgiving sermon, like give thanks always, uh, you're probably not going to find it, but you will be encouraged to give thanks along the way as we hear again from the prophet Haggai, or you may have heard of it as Haggai. Uh, it's that little book towards the end of the, New T the Old Testament, so feel free to look at the table of contents and find, it, find your way there. Don't be ashamed, and nobody looking over and judging people around you if you have to do it. Get to the book of Haggai. We're going to look at chapter 2 today. We've already had a couple sermons, and if you missed those first sermons from Brandon or Pastor Matt, go back and look at them online so that you see the whole scope of what our, this minor prophet is trying to say to God's people. So today we're going to have a conversation, much like the conversations that you probably have had in your, in your past already. So this might be a repeat of some things, and hopefully we don't create any PTSD with anybody. If we do, we'll have pastors on hand to help you along the way. But Haggai is really pointed today in having conversation with God's people, much like the conversations that maybe you have in your own life when they just kind of stop you in your tracks. You know, like when you go to the doctor for a routine visit, and he says, we need to run some more tests. Or you go in for your monthly business meeting with your employer, and he says, corporate is changing some things. Or maybe you are at work, and your wife calls you out of the blue and says, you need to hurry up and come home. Those moments when the world stops spinning, and you, your, your breath is taken, and your mind races to the worst-case scenarios could be life-changing conversation taking place. But it doesn't always have to be bad news, right? There could be those good conversations like, congratulations, you're going to be a father. Or your child just got a full-ride scholarship to college. Can I get an amen on that one, right? So that's the season of life that we're in, and we're praying hard. If you want to give, you can give. I'll take it before I leave. <laughs> there are conversations in our life that just seem to change everything. And Haggai is a series of conversations. I'm going to rewind the tape a little bit and look at the previous conversations from the previous chapters and the previous sermons just to kind of catch you up to speed in case you stumbled in today for the first time. In chapter 1 of Haggai, he speaks to Zerubbabel, who is a governor, and to Joshua, a high priest, and he tells them in essence, through, God tells them through this prophet, you haven't finished the work that I've told you to do, so go back and rebuild the temple. And for this time, for this prophet, which is not unlike the other prophets, the people actually repent and start building the temple again. And then six months later in Haggai 2, as we heard last week, he speaks to Zerubbabel and Joshua again, and he gives them words of encouragement, telling them to be strong. Over and over, he tells them to be strong, to encourage them, for this work is hard. And he wants to remind his people that God is faithful to provide and to be with them. And so the people continue to labor to rebuild this temple. 
And then today we'll look at conversations, actually two that take place in the same day, about two months after the others. When he talks to the priest of the law, and he talks to the governor Zerubbabel for the third time. And what I hope that we will see today as we walk through these few verses at the end of the book of Haggai, that these are not just historical conversations that have been recorded some 500 years before Jesus Christ was born, but they're conversations for God's people at any period of history, including today. As he calls us to consider our ways, and if I've learned anything from my Bible reading through the years, my heart is a whole lot like the people that I read in here. I'm just as prone to run in the wrong direction and rebel against God's goodness. And I imagine that your heart is a lot like my heart. So let's pull up and have a conversation with this minor prophet that's often skipped over in our Bible reading. Begin with me looking at the first conversation where he invites God's people to consider today's reality. Look in chapter 2 of Haggai, beginning in the 10th verse. I have the English Standard Version, but you follow along in whatever version you have. The words will also be on the screen for you. The Word of God through the prophet Haggai says, On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread, stew, or wine, or oil, or any kind of food, does it become unholy? The priest answered and said, no. In verse 13, he says again, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. The prophet encourages us and God's people to consider today's reality by first stating that what you are doing is unacceptable to a holy God. He uses this these questions, almost like a grade school question to a priest that will easily know the answer. This is like a one plus one question in a math class. This is really easy for everyone to answer. He talks about holy meat, like these priests are carrying around some Slim Jims in their pocket or something. I don't know, but they said, this holy meat, if it touches anything else, is it going to make it holy, that he asked. And of course, the priests say, no, just the meat is holy. Everything else isn't consecrated. And so what Haggai is telling them and telling us is that holiness is not transferable. Just because you attend a worship service or you take a pilgrimage across the world, the other side of the world, to a religious site, is not going to make you acceptable to God. But then he asks a second question, and he kind of reverses it and sees if he can catch them and talks about a dead body. And, you know, if someone were to touch a dead body, does that make him unclean? And if he were to touch all these consecrated things, does it also make them unclean? Well, yeah, that's a no-brainer. If you touch a dead body and you touch anything else, everything you touch is also going to become unclean. Like picking up your middle school son after a football practice that it's rained all afternoon. You got a brand new car, you pick him up and he's covered in sweat and orange mud. That consecrated car is definitely going to become unclean. Same thing here, right? So he's saying that there's, if anything that is defiled is going to be contagious, unholiness is contagious. 
But then he pulls the punchline, kind of pulls the rug out from under him in verse 14, and he says, so it is with this people. Now remember, he's talking to the priests who are then teaching the people to follow after the ways of the Lord. And he says, so it is with this people, with this nation before me declares the Lord. And so it is with every work of their hand. What they offer is unclean. He says, what you're doing is unacceptable to me as a holy God. Just because you're building a temple and the temple will be a holy dwelling place for God does not automatically make you a holy people. Just because you're doing religious efforts, you're still sinful people, so you can't take those religious efforts and think they're automatically gonna make you righteous. God's people are guilty of multiple sins. If you go back and read chapter one, you'll see them. They're very proud people to even stand before God and say, nope, it's not time for us to build the temple. They're very selfish people. They're building their own temples instead of building the temple where God would dwell. They're greedy. They're never having enough. They're always looking for more, and they're just flat disobedient. God told them to do one thing, and they're not doing it. They were rescued from exile to rebuild a temple. They've chosen to build their own lives, their own kingdoms, with the freedom and the provisions that God has given them. Their lives, their works, their efforts, their offerings, their everything, the prophet says, are unclean before a holy God. Every work of their hands, he says. So whatever they offer will also be unclean because their lives are unacceptable before God. They're religious, but that doesn't automatically make them righteous. Their offerings and service may be dutiful, but they are not devoted to the one who has rescued them. So we come down to the first reality in these conversations, and it is this. Their hearts are squandering the mercies of God. You could easily compare them to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 where Jesus would say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are all like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all kind of uncleanness. Well, probably more accurately, if you go a little bit further back, Paul would say to 2 Timothy 3, For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of good, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Religious appearance is never enough before a God who has called his people to be completely devoted to him. Divided hearts are really defiled hearts. No amount of religious activity or benevolent activity can cleanse the stain of one's sinfulness. God's people are in a dangerous place. And so Haggai says, stop. Consider your ways before a holy God. And in verse 15, he has a second argument to this conversation with the priest. Look at verse 15 as I read. He says, now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. 
I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, said the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the, fi- the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, he says. He not only tells them that th- what they're doing is unacceptable, he says that you're unfruitful before a holy God. He tries to get them to remember what God has done in the past. And he says, think back with me for a little bit about how God has leaned in and lovingly disciplined his people so that they would return to him. Do you remember that when the temple was destroyed and you were taken off into Remember when you continually lacked for grain or for wine, there was never enough? Do you remember when the Lord struck your crops with blight or mildew or hail? So then look around today, priest. God's people, look around. For the foundation of the temple may be laid, but your barns are still empty. In fact, you don't even have any crops bearing any fruit. You don't even have any seed for any future crop. You are without everything, he says. All your toiling is producing absolutely nothing, the prophet tells them. So like an old man pulls up a chair with a young guy, Haggai says, don't you remember what happened the last time you saw this? Don't you remember when God afflicted you and lovingly disciplined you because of your sinfulness? Have you forgotten what happened the last time? Look around. See the cycle that's starting again. See that you're doing the very same things that they did before. See the the unfruitfulness of your hands and the unacceptable hearts that you're bringing before the Lord. Your barns should be full, but they are empty. You have nothing. So the second reality from this conversation with the minor prophet says that they were so busy building their own kingdoms that they failed to see their unfruitfulness. And this really hits home for us, for me. I mean, when was the last time you actually just stopped to consider whether or not you are bearing any fruit at all? I'm not talking about bank accounts or corporate ladders. I'm talking about eternal fruit. If your life is like mine, before you wake up, there are expectations in your inbox waiting for you to respond to. I mean, we're rolling into holiday season. There are plenty of conversations about where you have to be and what you have to bring and what you're going to do when you get there. And it just keeps going. This busyness is normal. But my question to me and to us today as God's people that are set apart for his purposes, is our busyness bearing any fruit at all for God's kingdom? Are we guilty to continue to drive when the lights on our spiritual dashboard are flashing? Are we guilty of trying to build our own kingdom of our, in our retirement accounts or this new position at work that we're laboring to get promoted for? Are we ignoring the reality that our fruit is not going to last at all? that there really is no seed in the barns of our life. There's no peace. There's no patience. There's no gentleness. There's no self-control. 
not to mention anyone else showing these fruit because we're spending time with them. God called us to bear fruit, fruit that would last as we abide with Christ. Are we a lot like the remnant in this text? That we're busy, but we're not fruitful. God's word to the prophet Haggai is really a good warning for us to pause and take inventory of our ways. We really need a good friend who has full permission to poke and prod in our life and text us and say, hey, let's grab coffee. We can try to avoid it, but they pursue us, and we need to hear their words considerably because we all are prone to squander God's mercies. The things that we will give thanks for this week will be old news next week. We'll take them for granted. Our hearts are prone to building our own kingdoms and ignoring the, our own unfruitfulness. So we need conversations like this from the prophet and from those with our friends and our small group to say, consider today. But notice the conversation changes. Because it's not all just bad news. Sometimes God sends a prophet and he just points out every weakness and disobedience and he runs back out of town. But not this prophet. The conversation changes at the end of verse 19. Look at it again. After talking about their unfruitfulness and how unacceptable they are before a holy God and talking about they have nothing in their barns and nothing's bearing fruit, he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. This is God speaking through his prophet to his people, and he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. So consider with me for a moment. Let's rewind the historical tape. These are God's people. They were chosen to be a light to the nations. They were rescued from Egypt and sustained in a wilderness wandering. They were brought into Canaan, a land that should be abundant and fruitful. And yet they rebelled against God so much that a whole generation had to be buried in the desert. Their unfruitfulness then did not diminish the fruitfulness, the faithfulness of God. And while they were in Canaan, they failed to follow God's command to be a people that were set apart from the idols. They took idols into their homes. They intermarried into other tribes, taking on their worship with them. They were just like the Canaanites. But their unfaithfulness then did not diminish God's faithfulness to them. They installed kings who would lead nations astray, causing many to stumble in sin. They ignored the prophets of God who warned them time and time again about their trespasses against a holy God, who called them into repentance. But their unfaithfulness then did not diminish God's faithfulness. And now in Haggai, once again, God's people who were rescued from exile in a foreign land and brought back to Jerusalem to, with freedom and everything that they needed to rebuild a temple they were again unfruitful. At some point, God just says, I'm done, right? You, you, it's the way the story should read. It's like, I've had it. I'm done. We're not continuing this relationship anymore. But he doesn't. He says, but from this day on, I will bless you. Church, that's good news. That's really good news because today you may feel just like this people who are a whole lot more unfaithful than they are faithful. But God tells you even today, but from this day on, I will bless you. If 
you will repent of your ways and trust in me, from this day on, I will bless you. So reality number three that's really worth taking note of is the sum of all of your unfaithfulness will never diminish the faithfulness of God. No matter how far you wander, no matter how disobedient you are to the things that God has told you to do, the sum of all of them will never diminish any of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is intended to lead you to repentance, for you to turn in response to, from your ways and to live a life of faith and obedience. And so Haggai is calling us and you to consider today's reality. Consider these words of hope, that if you will return, I will bless you. But there's a second conversation in today's text. He goes from talking to the priest to administer the law, giving him a couple of kindergarten questions to point out real important points, to then going back to the governor, Zerubbabel. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2, and we'll finish out this little minor prophet book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, the same day as the last conversation. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and to overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Pretty interesting conversation, right? You imagine a guy like this walking into your office and saying, oh, I'm getting ready to blow everything up. That's what he says. I'm going to overthrow everything. He says, in prophetic language, right? You see it throughout all of the Old Testament. You can find it some in the prophetic writings back in Revelation. He's talking about the, all the kingdoms of this world will be destroyed. He's using this language of a future battle that will happen one day. that The heavens and the earth will shake. And this time when they shake, things aren't coming to benefit God's people like riches and, and provisions for the temple. But we're going to shake the heavens this time to overthrow the thrones and the kingdoms that are reigning over you today. Oh, and by the way, the armies are going to fight against each other so you don't have to fight against them. For God's people, for Zerubbabel, like the governor, this is bringing back images of past wars that took place, stories that he had been told and handed down around dinner tables. He's remembering the Red Sea when it parted and the Egyptian army was flooded when they tried to cross later on. He's remembering the Midianites and the Philistines that fought against each other and God's people triumphed. There was peace in the land again. These stories are hopeful stories, especially for a people that are still under control of a Persian army, which is the original audience's context. They're in Jerusalem, but they're still bowing down to a foreign king in Persia. God tells them in 23 that there would be a new king to be enthroned. Look at these words closely, because this really is the whole hope of even for us today. God says through the prophet, on that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like the signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. This Lord of hosts, this God Almighty who fights for the sake of his people, says that on this coming day, I will intervene for the sake of my people. There will be a day that my, this covenant-keeping God will defeat Every kingdom, every nation, everyone sitting on any throne as he exercises his authority. 
He's going to wield his strength and his muscle to fulfill his promises for his people. Promises that go way beyond the Persian Empire or the Roman Empire that would follow them or any empire even today. There is not a government that will not be overthrown so that God's kingdom can reign forever and evermore. It's the promise to his people. He says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, reminding even this forgotten governor who has really no power of authority in, in Jerusalem. He's given a work, but he has no, nothing of any worth. He says, I'm still working in your midst. I am going to take you. I, I am sovereignly going to do this in your life. Zerubbabel would never be king, but he would point to the future king. He would point to the one that would come, who we now know as Jesus Christ, that God would take and install him to reign forevermore. He calls Zerubbabel my servant. This appointed servant of Yahweh, a covenant-keeping God, for a particular time and a particular purpose of rebuilding a temple. But he would be a representative of a coming suffering servant that we would know as the Messiah, as the one that we would know as Jesus Christ who came to bring forgiveness of sin and reconcile a sinful man to a holy God when he laid down his life. He told the governor that I will make you like the signet ring. Now, signet ring is like a ring that you would put into melted wax on a decree from someone of authority just to seal the letter. When that signet ring was placed, it meant that it had power. It was an official voice, an official declaration from someone who was seated in authority. He says, oh, governor, you may not have power now, but one day I will make you like the signet ring. He would have authority as a symbol of God's renewed covenant. And this is important to capture because you don't really see it written out in the text. But Zerubbabel is in the tribe of Judah, the same tribe that the promised Messiah would come from. So if you're a people, you're probably feeling really forgotten when you're a remnant brought back into a country and you have a governor who really has no power. And God says, oh, but I'm going to make you like a signet ring and I'm going to give you authority just like I'm going to give to the line of Judah. I promised it. I'm going to fulfill it. Your authority will always come from this line of Judah. He says, I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Imagine the hope that's instilled in God's people when they hear these words. Everything in their sight seems contrary to God's promises of a coming Messiah, of an eternal, peaceful kingdom. They are but a remnant under a Persian rule. Their temple, the very place where God would dwell with his people, was unfinished. Their sins are so obvious that they had to send this guy named Haggai in to have conversations with them, almost like an intervention. Why would God remember them now? But he did. So the last reality from these two conversations is this. It's really good news for us. is that God will fulfill his promises. He will. It's in his nature. And his nature never changes. God is saying to them and saying to us that I am going to do something great in your future. The conversations of, with Haggai are not just for Zerubbabel or the priests of the law and for God's people, but they're also for us today as God's people. And even though everything in our sight may seem contrary to the promises of an eternal kingdom that is yet to come, God is still faithfully 
at work in our midst. One day the kingdom of this world will be overturned by the one whom God has already chosen and sent to redeem us from the curse of sin. This final chosen one that's spoken of in Luke 23 will in fact be the chief cornerstone of God's purpose, God's promised eternal kingdom. Look at the way Paul describes it in Ephesians 2. Paul says to God's people then and to us even today, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Consider this future promise. For us as members of his household today, for those who have said yes to Jesus, who have been redeemed by his grace, God is faithful to bring everything he promised to a reality. For many of us, that will be a glorious day. A day because we have already placed our faith in this coming king who came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died in our place for our sins, and yet he rose again on the third day to be seated on the right hand of God with all authority and power. That one God, that one king is coming back to reign forever. And so we who have faith in him can hope in his return. So let today's conversation encourage you. Also let it challenge you because God has entrusted a lot to you. His mercies have been abundant, but what are you doing with them? Some of you have more freedom in your life now than you will ever have the rest of your life. What are you doing with that freedom? We have more money than any other nation. What are we doing with it? I could go on and on. God has been so gracious. His mercy and grace have been lavished on us, but what are we doing with it? For others, today's reality is not as hopeful. You've never repented of your sin. You've never trusted in this one that I'm talking about, this King Jesus. Sure, you may know the stories, and you may celebrate Christmas just like the rest of us, you may be religious and even here today, but you've never given your life wholly to this one who gave his life for you. Your eternal future is really uncertain still. So would you consider these words and respond in repentance and faith? God's people repented and returned to work. Many of us have repented and placed faith in Christ. Would you be one? that will repent and believe in this one true Jesus Christ who died so that you could have life. And then this conversation could change your future forever. Whether you're in Christ or pursuing Christ or just checking out Christ, would you consider today's reality in light of where you are and what you're doing and look to the promised future that God will fulfill one day. We're getting ready to gather around the table to remember what Jesus has done. Maybe we need to take a couple minutes before we gather and partake of the bread and the cup to consider our reality today and rest in the hope of tomorrow.
take a few minutes and consider that before we gather around the table.